So again, this morning, church, we will focus on that verse 3-5, and we will also cover all of what you just heard in chapter 4 this morning. And I did want us to hear that whole passage of Scripture in chapter 4, because what now is happening in God's Word here, in this book of Hosea that we've been going through verse by verse, it's really interesting. It's interesting. And to see what I mean, just briefly as we start this morning, just remember briefly with me the flow so far of Hosea, especially chapters 1 through 3. Because in Hosea chapter 1, if you remember, we get the beginning of this story where Hosea is told by God to go and marry a prostitute, all to symbolize how God himself is married to his people Israel who are unfaithful to him. And then Hosea and Gomer have kids together. And then in chapter 2, we hear a lot about uh, Gomer's unfaithfulness that represents Israel's unfaithfulness. And then still in chapter 2, we see how God says, though, that he'll still love his people and go get them back. Which then finally last week in chapter 3 led to how Hosea did go and love Gomer and get her back. And how God said he will get his people back which all climaxed with that promise of the new covenant of love and intimacy that would come, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And that's where chapter 3 ends. And it's that, that's where that final verse 5 of chapter 3 comes in. Because look there, look down at your Bibles. Remember, Steve just read this. But 3.5 says this, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And as we said last week, that is an exact prediction of the new covenant in Christ. That's where you and I fit in, and that's where, really, in some ways, this book was going. This is the most hopeful verse, in some ways, of the whole book of Hosea. It's that promise that verse 5 is going to happen. That, yes, it's been dark in the book of Hosea with Israel's unfaithfulness, but God loves even unfaithful people, and he promises that this new covenant would come, and it did come. In Jesus Christ. And so that's Hosea 1 through 3, right? And all of that being said, we could imagine then that Hosea would end after chapter 3. Right? With this, with this display of God's love and him promising this new covenant. And yet it doesn't. At all. Rather, the book of Hosea is a whopping 14 chapters. And guess what? Do you know what the overwhelming majority of this book is actually like? Well, it's what we just heard as an example there in chapter 4. It is a lot of verses and chapters about the seriousness of sin. Sin in God's people back then in Israel and and sin which is still in us in many ways. That is actually the majority of Hosea. And that's chapters 4 through 14. And then yes, in some of these passages, there are going to be some smaller passages about hope. And especially there's a great chapter to end Hosea in chapter 14, which we're actually going to look at next week. But overall, I hope you know this here, what we just read in chapter 4, is the majority of this book of Hosea. And that is why, as you can see on the slide for this sermon series, it's why we're covering Hosea's chapters 1 through 4 and also chapter 14. Because covering the whole book of Hosea would have taken a long, long, long time. And so we won't be doing that. But then, to be honest, it would have been a lot easier just to cover Hosea chapters 1 through 3. (laughs) 
And, and I almost did decide to do that. But then I realized that if we did that as a church, we'd be missing a huge part of Hosea. And so in fairness to God's word, since it's God's word, the reason we're actually covering chapter 4 this morning is so that we can get a taste of really what the majority of this book is actually like. And that's again what we see here. It's the Lord making plain his people's sin. It's God over and over again and again telling his people how dark their situation and their hearts truly are. And, and that's somewhat interesting, right? Because the question we then have to ask is, but why? Because again, we should feel like we've already seen our sin in God's love in this book. And not only that, but again, chapter 3, verse 5 would have been a sweet ending to this whole book. And so why have all these chapters about sin? What does this accomplish? And since this is God's word, we're basically asking, what does this accomplish God? Right? You just heard this long scripture reading. God, why do you have these sort of passages in your word? And here's, here's, I think, an answer. And here's why then we're going to be covering all of chapter 4 this morning. And then also going back to 3-5. So why are all these dark chapters here in Hosea, you might be wondering? Well, think of it this way. So in chapters 1 through 3, yes, we see a brief overview of Israel's sin and of God's love and of him taking his people back and of him promising Christ. And then, yes, chapter 3, verse 5 basically shines like a bright light over this whole book. It's like a giant floodlight drawing our eyes to God's love and his promise in Christ. But do you know what makes us appreciate the light, the bright light of God's love even more? Well, leaving it for a little bit and descending further and further into the darkness. And that's essentially why I think God included chapters 4 through 14 in Hosea and why he didn't have it end in chapter 3. Or to think of it this way, chapters 1 through, four, 1 through 3 are an overview, but now, beginning in chapter 4, it's almost as if the light goes out again. And we're almost back to where we started, and now God is taking us deeper and deeper into the cave of Israel's sin, of your and my sin, also that when we remember the promise of 3-5 and we think of Jesus and the light comes back on and we realize that God really is a God of love so that that light may shine all the more brightly. After going into the darkness, we might appreciate God's promise and his love even more. And so that's why these chapters are here. And that and basic is actually what we're going to be doing this morning as well. Because now as for an outline of our time together this morning, we're going to have two main sections. Two main sections. First, we're actually going to look at all of chapter 4. And it is a big chapter and so we won't be going as deep into every verse like we often do. But we'll look at God's word in chapter 4 to descend deeper into darkness and sin. Israel's sin and their darkness and our sin and our darkness and our hearts and lives as well. And so we will do that first, but then second, we will then do that for the sake of then seeing God's love and hope in Christ even more clearly in verse three, chapter 3, verse 5. And so that is where we're going, church. In summary, first, darkness and sin in chapter 4, and then second, the brightness of the promise of Christ in Hosea 3, 5. But all that said, let's then dive in then and begin our first section together. And again, here we're in all of chapter 4. And our goal here is to see the darkness more of Israel's sin and our sin. And quickly on that, just as a brief application, 
I do know that we, especially in our therapeutic, only make me feel good sort of culture, that we, even as Christians who come to church like this this morning, we, we can approach passages like we just heard in the Old Testament and think that, man, they're just overly negative. Right? Or we can think that we just don't need them. Or worse, we can start to think that the God of the Old Testament, by having things like this in his word, that he was more of a harsh God, while the God of the New Testament is more of a loving God. But let me just say that is not true because there's only one God and this is the same God and there's passages like this even in the New Testament. But, but even more than that, I do hope you, you come to know that God having passages like this in his word is loving because the truth is, brothers and sisters, we are sinners. We're more deeply sinful than we know and Israel was too. And so God having these sort of dark passages where he's honest and blunt about sin therefore is loving because it's not only true but these sort of passages point us to who we really are on our own and what we really need. But that said, so we're going to be looking now at all of chapter 4 and in order to go through everything here we're going to break down what God says in this chapter into three major sections or paragraphs. Three major paragraphs. And we'll first start in just verses 1 through 3 and here we're going to see God has an accusation against Israel and their sin which applies to us and our sin on our own as well. So see this for yourself. Look down in your Bibles, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So a few brief things here. First, notice that God calls his people right away in verse 1, O children of Israel. And that again supports the fact that God is not being unloving here. Rather, just like a father who sees his kids do some really dumb and hurtful things, he, he's, he's loving by telling his children what he's about to tell them here. And then the next line of verse 1, you can see God says he has, quote, a controversy against his people. And that word controversy there may more accurately be translated something like an accusation or a charge. Because this was actually the word they used in legal courtroom procedures. And so God here is like in court with them, showing them the evidence that they, that, they, that we are really broken and sinful. And then third on these verses, though, that what have they done though? Well, as you can still see in verse 1, there's, quote, no faithfulness or steadfast love, nor is there any knowledge of God. And then in verse 2, there's the actual list of external sins that they did have, right? Things like swearing and murder and stealing and adultery and bloodshed. And more generally, it says there, they quote, were breaking all bounds. Meaning in their hearts, they just wanted to rebel and do their own thing. Which all in this section finally leads to verse 3 where we see the results of this sin. If you look down, what are the results? Well, it's affected their land and even nature around them. But then, as for them personally, as you can see in that second line, an important line in verse 3, because of their sin, quote, and all who dwell in the land languish. Which is revealing, isn't it? Because that does show us that this sin of theirs isn't leading them really to more happiness. It's, it's leading them to languishing, and, that, and that's what sin does. It leads us to a lack of true life, a lack of true vitality and peace and joy. 
So that's verses 1 through 3 quickly. It's a general overview of God's charge against his people. That they really are sinful and their sin has effects, bad effects. And for us, just really quickly before we move on, just stepping back for a second, we do need to realize for all of us that this in the Bible, reading this in the Bible, we shouldn't read this list or something like this and all of a sudden just automatically think of the world primarily. And I say that because we need to be so careful of that, just automatically reading lists like this and thinking that's just them. And I say that because, yes, we may not be murdering one another and hopefully we're not actually committing adultery like many of them were. But remember, it is our Savior Jesus himself who took sins exactly like that list and showed us that actually, yes, we may not murder, but we get angry with one another, don't we? And yes, we may not actually commit physical adultery, but we've all had lust and more. And so the point is, Brothers and sisters, we're sinners like this. It wasn't just mainly Israel and it's not mainly just the world out there that's sinful. It's us. We're broken and sinful. And on our own, the Lord has a right charge against us. Our darkness is real. So that's the first paragraph here in chapter 4. That leads us now to the second section or paragraph here. And this is the longest. This is going to be all of verses 4 through 14. And now here the Bible is going to get a little more specific because what we're going to see here is the sin of especially bad leadership and the negative results that led to. And in our individualistic mindset, we might initially think that's not as important, but we'll talk about how that really applies. But first, let's just read it and see it. And there's a lot of verses But as you hear this again, just notice these two things that keep showing up. The bad leadership and the results that led to. So look down in your Bibles, all of verses 4 through 14. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with the prostitutes. And sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. So I know there is a lot in there. But to start on all that, just again, beginning there in verse 4. You can see God especially has contention with the priests. And why? Well, because of their bad leadership, the people are hurting. 
Because notice that famous verse 6, the people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, meaning they don't know God. And back then it was the priests and the prophets, the leaders of Israel, who were supposed to instruct the people about God and his word. And then in this passage, that's then built upon in verses 7 through 10, where you can see the leaders not only don't teach the people, but they actually like the people being sinful because they themselves are sinful. And these leaders are even using the people, which is why God is so firm against them here. Which all then led in verses 12 through 13 to the results of having bad leaders like that. And that's how, as you heard in verse 12, it results in the people not going to the Lord because they're not taught about the Lord. They don't know the Lord's word and so instead they go to idols. They're looking elsewhere for help and guidance. Which finally on this big section brought us to that verse 14 where the denouncement actually transitions from just the priest leaders to now men in general with the men in Israel going to cult prostitutes, which results in the people coming to ruin. And in brief, that verse does show us, church, that in God's word it is true, that especially when men go astray, when when they go astray in homes or in marriages or in churches, that particularly does lead to a lot of hurt. And so I know that is a lot, but that's really quickly verses 4 through 14. And again, you may hear that and think at first it doesn't apply that much to us because we just naturally now think about the individual. But the truth is, seeing this in God's word here really does show us that we as human beings, and other passages show us this too, that we as human beings, all of us, are more like sheep than we admit. We do need good leadership. We need guidance. And that's, yes, true, of course, about leaders and institutions like the government or places like church with elder leaders and pastors or in the home or in the workplace or more. That's true. But this is especially the case just of our lives in general. We as human beings, we need to be led. We need good guidance. We don't know where to go on our own. And not only that, but without good guidance and with bad guidance, we're led even further into sin. We're wandering sheep. Which brings us to the final paragraph here in chapter 4. And that's sin. And that's the, that's the results of sin. That's what we've seen in bad leadership. But now really to end this chapter, what we're going to see is that overall, God's point here is that in their sin, on their own, like this, they're without hope. And so are we on our own, without hope by ourselves. So now notice that theme as you hear these last five verses. Hosea four fifteen through 19. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, no go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves up to whoring, and their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So as you might have seen, this sense of being without hope shows up multiple times here. Verse 15, they can no longer say as the Lord lives. In verse 16, Israel doesn't want to be fed by the Lord anymore. And then in verse 17, God makes that frightening statement, leave him alone. And then in verse 18, the, the rulers dearly love their shame. And then finally in this chapter, in verse 19, it all ends with that picture of how, quote, a wind has wrapped them in its wings. Or literally in the Hebrew, that, wind, that word says a wind has bound them. 
And so the final picture in this chapter here is that Israel is trapped like in a tornado in sin or hurricane. That, that's the picture. And hearing all that, again, I hope you see that is the Bible telling us that's how we all are naturally as well. Because yes, our sins might not manifest themselves in the same exact ways, but still again, it was Jesus and his apostles who in the New Testament make it so clear that we should read passages like this and think of ourselves. We are just like them. Because on our own, before we knew the Lord, and honestly, even in our struggles as we do now know the Lord, this is us. And personally, and to bring this home to us now, personally, I, I, I think this frequently, and I, and I hope you do too. Because first, I often think, man, where would I be, right, without God's grace and without Jesus? Right, what sort of sins would I just be engaging in? What kind of pursuits would I be pursuing? What hopelessness would I feel? But not only that, but then second, I think, and how much more dark and sinful are my thoughts, my actions, and the things I do, even right now as a Christian. Right? Because even our best things are stained with sin. And that's not even talking about the things we know we struggle with. And so we all feel that, right? I mean, we are more prone to be sinful and selfish, unloving people than we like to admit. And even our good things... Even in those, we're more God-forgetting, selfish, all about us, having bad motives than we like to admit as well. <laughs> and the point is that that's really what's going on with Israel. And that is a picture of us. Which all then is finally about to lead us in a minute to chapter 3, verse 5. But before we do that, I know this has been a little grim, but let me just say that I do hope that after seeing that we all at this point are feeling our darkness a little bit more before we move on. Meaning not just understanding the idea of sin in our heads, but feeling it to be personal. Because to be honest, sometimes, especially in our culture, and I know this may sound weird, but the reality is sometimes if you think about it, the biggest hindrance to really appreciating and loving and being thankful for and even genuinely following Jesus Sometimes the biggest hindrance to all of that is that we really don't feel how dark we are. We really don't see how much we actually need Jesus and his grace. Because think about it, we are all surrounded by a culture of self-sufficiency. We are even told all the time to believe in ourselves. We have technology to help us with so many things in our lives. We are more affluent than we've ever been. We're more comfortable than we've ever been. And then on top of that, to be honest, a lot of that is only magnified here in this area of Fairfield County where it's this affluent, fast-paced, self-sufficient, we've got this environment. And then if, if that wasn't enough, then on top of that, we all know that we're in a society that is so divided that we tend not to think of ourselves as the bad ones, but we primarily t tend to think of them as the dark, non dark ones, the bad ones, whoever the them is people not like us, that other political party, whatever it is, we tend to think they're the real sinners. And therefore, in that sort of, sort of setting we're all in, when it comes to Jesus, yes, we may think, sure, Jesus is good to make me feel more loved, or sure, Jesus is good to get me out of hell. But if that's all that we feel, then we won't really appreciate the light and that's because we haven't sensed the depth of our own personal darkness. 
And so instead of just that, I pray again for all of us that we may feel that this, this is you and I. Hosea chapter 4 and the whole example of Israel in the Old Testament, that's why it's there. I hope we feel that on our own we, we have and want no knowledge of God. That on our own we have so many sins and that even as Christians we still have so many sins. And so that does mean that on our own the Lord does have a proper right accusation or charge against us. Right, that's part of the gospel because we're sinners. We can't make excuses. We're selfish, God-belittling, broken, sinful people. Right, we're, we're in a lot of darkness. We are without hope on our own. We don't deserve to be loved. But we are. <laughs> it's amazing. And that now leads us perfectly to our second and main section this morning. And for this, as you know, we're now going to just be in chapter 3, verse 5. And we briefly covered this last week to talk about how God really loves us. And he's proved it in history. That was last week, but now for this week. What I want us to do is now that we've dived more into the darkness for a while, we can now return to chapter 3, verse 5 and see how, more, how much more precious and bright it really is. Because if that's Israel and their sin, 700 BC, and that's us and our sin naturally, now notice what God promises here in verse 5. So look down at your Bibles. This is the central bright spot in all of Hosea. The Bible says this. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So that's the promise. And again, that's a specific promise of the new covenant in Christ that has come in Jesus Christ. But, but here's, here's what's so great. So, so think about it. What we saw in chapter 4 right there about our sin basically boiled down to three main things. Think about it. Three main things. Number one, a lack of knowledge about God and therefore a lack of going to God. Remember that? And then number two, how that all centered around not having good leaders. Remember that? And then number three, chapter four included all the bad results of all of that. So that's Israel and us in our sin. No knowledge of God or wanting to go to God without a good leader with all these negative results. But now here in verse five, what do we see? Or to say it another way, if those three things are Israel's darkness and our darkness, then what's the light? Number one, we return to God and seek God. Number two, we not only have God, but God sends us David, the king, the Messiah, which means we have the good leader, the good ruler and guarder we need. And then number three, that brings all these good results, coming in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. And so when you see the darkness, you see this really is the light. This is what we need. This is God's love. Lost sinners like us, just prone to be led by bad leaders with bad results, are returned to God with the best leader with the most beautiful results. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? But now let's break this verse down even more together. So to do this, we're going to look at though those two pairs there that are in this promise. I think it's helpful and encouraging. The two pairs there. The first pair is return and seek the Lord. And the second pair is that we're going to come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. So let's quickly take those one at a time. And so we'll begin with that promise in 3.5 that God's people, that we will return and seek him. And specifically, as you can see, that we will return to and seek this king. 
And as for what that means, both of those verbs are important, return and seek. And in a way, they do describe a big part of Christianity. Because as for that word return, I hope you know that the New Testament word repent, which you might have heard a lot, is basically the same idea. Because repent, which is the word that Jesus used all the time, means to turn away from ourselves and our own self-reliance and our lives of sin and to turn or return to God. And to be clear, only God can make that happen. Which is why it's a promise from God here in the book of Hosea. And so if you, brother and sister, have turned, returned to God, I hope you know God ultimately did that. He gets the glory. And on that, we do know that it's turning from God or turning back to God as a gift of God because Paul says clearly in the New Testament, this is 2 Timothy, quote, that God grants or gives or gifts repentance. And so repentance, returning to God is a gift of God. It is something that God promises he does for his people. But not just return, right? Instead, what else? Well, sinners will then seek the Lord too and especially seek Jesus. And I love that because that's Christianity as well. Because remember, true Christianity is never just believing facts. And I say that because we could imagine, right, God promising something here like, they'll return and believe in me. And that is, that is true, of course. But, but what does true belief in God, true trusting in Jesus always produce? Well, in the Bible, it's clear. It'll always produce a seeking of wanting to know God, desiring more of him, seeking to know him more, know his word more, follow him more. And and honestly, bringing that to you and I here this morning, it's also supposed to include doing all that with fellow believers in fellowship in a church community, which is why church is so important. Because again, this community, not just the service, but this community is Jesus' planned way of his people seeking him more together. In a local church. But in short, that is the first pair here of God's promise. And it certainly applies to us. God promises that his people will return and seek him in Jesus. And again, I pray that has happened to you. Because that is what defines you and I as Christians. But that now leads to the second pair. So return and seek. But now often, we do stop there and just talk about the initial stages of our faith. But the the Bible doesn't. Because instead of stopping there, the question we should ask is, okay, so sure, we've come back to God and we're seeking this God, but then in our relationship with God, what is that like? Or Or to use the language we're about to see in this second pair, the question is, where do we come to now that we've returned to God and seek Him? And the answer is that we come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness. And just like return and seek, this pair describes Christianity a lot as well. Because to begin, we'll start with that maybe harder one of coming in fear to the Lord. And at first, depending on how you grew up or your ideas of Christianity, that may sound a little unlike Christianity to you. But the truth is, as you may know, in the Bible, it is right to fear the Lord. It's fitting to fear the Lord, Old Testament and New Testament, for God's glory and for our good. And why? Well, in short, it is because the Lord, because God himself truly is awesome. Because God really is huge. Right? And really understanding that and feeling that is a good thing because let's be honest, we in our sin and just naturally, we tend to think of God just as a bigger version of you and I, but just up there. Right? Sure, we know he's powerful. Sure, we know he's more perfect than us. But again, 
Think about it. The reason that we sometimes tend to think that we know better than God or the reason we sometimes put bad motives on God or the reason we just tend to think that God isn't in control or anything like that is because we just kind of naturally tend to think that God isn't that big or that he's maybe a little flawed like us. We just so naturally in our sin, we downplay God's holiness, his otherness, his massiveness. And on this, as a quick note for all of us, I do think, and you might agree, that this is a big part of Christianity, even in Bible-believing churches, that has been downplayed or underemphasized, especially more recently. Right? And you can see this in just the amount of Christian books and Christian music and the emphasis in those. Because we as a culture, and it's a good thing, we've really embraced God's kindness and love. That is good. And, and we really do see God as our friend, which is also good. But in all that, sometimes we have forgotten about the true grandeur of God, right? The fact that God is infinite, right? The fact that God not only created everything, but he is sovereign over everything. That is the Bible says in Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. Or as the Bible says elsewhere, for example, that the nations to him are like a drop in a bucket. And so it does actually make sense that the first Part of this promise here in the second pair is that God's people will rightly and in a good way come and fear to the Lord. That's a good thing. But that's not it. So we do need that. But also, what makes coming in fear to the Lord particularly sweet is that we come to God's bigness and to God's goodness at the same time. <laughs> that's the promise. Verse 5, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. It's an amazing combination, isn't it? And even just hearing that, I hope you're then seeing why this verse here is so precious and why it is so fulfilled in Jesus. Because in this one verse, the background, yes, is that we're sinners. And in that setting, yes, God comes and in love and he promises his people will return and they'll seek him and they'll come and fear to him. And all of that makes sense. But not only that, because if that's all that was, if we were only to return from our sin and come to this huge God alone, that, that wouldn't be enough for his glory or for our good. And so instead of that, what's really the climax here? Or to use our analogy, if all of verse 5 is the light, what in the way is the brightest part, I think, of this light? Well, it's that as Christians, we know we're sinners, yes. We know that God has rescued us. We know that he's big. We know we come back to him and fear him and seek him. But biggest of all, in all that, what happens to us as Christians is that we come to realize that this God, this Jesus, he truly is good. And he treats us accordingly. We come to God and his goodness. And on that, importantly, notice, the Bible does not say that at the end of this, we come to our goodness, but God's goodness. And that actually matters because that means, just to be super clear, that Christianity was never meant to be, nor isn't today, mainly a moral thing. Meaning Jesus did not come mainly so that we'd just be better people. I hope you know that. That is shallow, and honestly, that's very us-centered. Instead, ultimately and mainly, what Jesus did for us, what he does in us, is he makes us people who see that this God of ours, this God who created us, who says we're sinners because we are, who saves us, who loves us, we come to see that he is good. He really is. The living God is good. 
He's proven that in Christ. He treats us with love out of his goodness. And brothers and sisters, we will cherish and live in God's goodness forever. So that's Hosea chapter 4 in the darkness. But that's also why verse 5 is so bright. But that finally leads to one quick thing here to end. In brief, um, that's just the final few words here. And that's how God says that this will all happen, as you can see, quote, in the latter days. And of course, much more time could be spent on that. But in brief, I just want to say that Jesus, when he showed up on the scene and the apostles in the New Testament, all make it clear that these latter days are now here. They're not some days in our future. Rather, Jesus is coming 2,000 years ago, initiated these latter and last days. And that matters finally for you and I here this morning because that means that's then where we find ourselves in all of this. Which, which matters because therefore we have really no choice but to make this personal. Because the truth is this all has happened. Right? Jesus, God, our King, he has come, he died for sinners and he offers this salvation here in verse 5 for the whole world. And so since that has happened in our world, in our history, then we do each have to, have to ask, well then how will I respond to this? Will I just ignore this or will I embrace this? Meaning, do I see that I'm like Hosea chapter 4 and have I returned to God in Christ or not? Because if not, I, I do pray that maybe you do embrace Christ even for the first time this morning. Because again, the God of the universe, he has come in love. And he does invite anyone to come. And it's good for us to come back to him because he is good. That's what we were made for. And so if you're here and you realize that you haven't done that, I pray that maybe you do. For the first time, come to Jesus, seek him in faith this morning. But then finally, for those of us, church, who by God's grace have returned to God and seek Jesus and believe that God is big and good, meaning for those of us who by God's grace are Christians, overall, I do just pray that we leave here once again amazed at the gospel and changed because of God's grace towards us. Because the truth is, one last time, we are like Hosea chapter 4. We are. That's us, especially on our own. And only the Lord knows the darkness, the true darkness of our hearts. But here again, in love, our God came. The leader that we need came. And he's ultimately delivered us from our darkness. He's made us people who have returned to him. He's made us people who want to seek him. And therefore, now and forever, we are people who get to come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll take the supper together. Let's pray.